hearty Merry Christmas to everyone. Heather's going down with some of our babies. If anyone else wants to bring their babies down, she's willing to, to watch. That's the first Christmas miracle. Is she's going to watch all the babies. And the second is that I'm going to keep this sermon to under 30 minutes. We'll see if I make good on that. So we're in uh, on the last name of Jesus from Isaiah chapter 9. If you'll turn there. And it it's calls him the Prince of Peace. So we've seen Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father was last week, and then Prince of Peace. So there's, there's a lot of talk in the world about peace. You know, uh, I used to work for an organization that was, the Peace Corps was founded on campus at uh, my old job at SIT, and that was sort of their whole mission was world peace in a sense. If we can, if we can just get people to understand one another and, and we can teach people and instruct people and, uh, and we can engineer ways for people to be at peace with each other. And they spent the better part of a century trying to do that. And certainly that uh, endeavor has been going on for much longer than just a century by uh, many people trying to find peace and world peace, but it's always apart from Christ. And that was, that was what I found so offensive uh, about when I worked there is that it seems, it sounds on the surface like a very noble goal. We want to establish world peace. But it's actually very, the, the height and peak of arrogance to think we can establish peace in the world, but we don't need Jesus Christ to do it. But that's what the world thinks. And consequently, that's why it's so elusive. That's why it's so elusive, why it's never achievable is because there's an inward source of turmoil that can't be fixed by human striving or ingenuity. There's, there's turmoil within each one of us, and if there's, as long as there's turmoil in here and there's turmoil between us and God, there can never be peace outwardly between one another. Not real peace, anyway. So, I want to give a little bit of the, the context of Isaiah's prophecy here. We've mostly looked at just the names, but if you go back before chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 altogether, but if you go back before that, the context is really uh, one of it, when a time when there was great darkness. There was a spiritual darkness that people had turned away from the Lord over and over and over, and there was a physical darkness. Uh, there was a coming Assyrian invasion that Isaiah was prophesying. And so they did eventually come and they besieged the land, they subjugated the inhabitants, and they took them to exile. They took into exile all those in the northern kingdom. And so that's the context of when this prophecy comes to us and from chapter 9. And it wasn't fulfilled, the birth of Christ, until several hundred years later. So God always takes a long-term view as we can see. So let's re-stand as we read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So think about that context. That's 
the context into which Isaiah is speaking this prophecy. And he says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great and glorious prophecy concerning your son. We thank you that you have so loved the world that you sent him that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that you spoke, the fact that you spoke this in the midst of a time when your people were rebelling against you and going after idols and doing all kinds of abomination reminds us of your grace and your mercy. And we rejoice in that tonight. Would you open our eyes to see more clearly the Lord Jesus Christ as the embodiment in full of your grace and your mercy and your love towards mankind. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That was the declaration. Open our eyes to see it and give us hearts to rejoice in it the more tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So it's an interesting title, The Prince of Peace, and a really comprehensive one. Before we get into that, we'd need to define what we mean by peace. It might be defined a lot of ways. Maybe you, some people think that peace is just an absence of conflict. There's just no fighting. If there's no fighting, then there's peace. But that's not really the kind of peace that the Bible speaks of, and certainly not the kind of peace that Jesus gives. There's, there's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament for peace, and then there's a Greek word in the New Testament for peace. The, the Old Testament word is shalom. It's a really very common word in Israel. They would say it to each other all the time as a greeting, as a salutation. It, it means peace, prosperity, an intact state of favorable circumstance. Completeness, the state of a totality of a collection. Safeness, salvation, the state of being free from danger. Health. The state of lack of disease or wholeness or well-being, satisfaction, contentment, the state of having one's basic needs or more being met and so being content, tranquility, and that was actually the meaning of it the first time that peace is used in the Bible when the Lord promises to Abraham that he would depart in peace and die in a good old age. 
And the New Testament word Irene is similar. Peace, harmony, tranquility, welfare, health, freedom from worry, assurance, safety. So you can see it's a, it's a lot more comprehensive than just no conflict. It's, an, it's a tranquility and a, a calmness and a, a fullness and a sufficiency. So there's a threefold piece for the people of God, and we're only going to get into, we only have time to get into the first one. There's a threefold piece for the people of God. The first and that we're going to focus on is there's peace with God. Peace with God, and that's reconciliation through the blood of Christ. But in addition to that, there's the peace of God. That's inward rest and calm that we have through communion with him. So the peace with God opens the door and clears the decks for us to have communion with God and have that inward peace. And then the third is that there's peace from God. And that's an, an outward circumstantial peace where you reap the fruit of obedience to God's commandments. And of course, you can only do that. You can only truly obey him if you have peace with him and you have inward pe- the peace of him and then you begin to obey him. And you see, you just look at the book of Proverbs and you see the difference between the life of the wicked and the life of the righteous. It's not to say, of course, that there's no suffering or no difficulty in the life of the righteous, but there is a peace and a prosperity and blessing for those who obey the commandments of God. But we're really going to focus on the first kind of peace because that's all that we have time to cover and with an understanding that the other two flow out of that so peace with God reconciliation through the blood of Christ everybody likes to hear about that you know it's the it's the what everybody focuses on and rightly so and and talks about and considers during Christmas even non-believers it's just a general time of welfare and happiness and celebration. And there's, there's some to that that's right because that's what the angels said, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. But before we can really get to that, we need to consider the insurmountable obstacle to peace with God. The, the whole reason that it is good news that Jesus came at all, the whole reason for there being celebration on Christmas, there's an insurmountable obstacle of sin. And it's a two-fold obstacle. There's the wrath of God towards sinners, and then there's the hostility of sinners towards God. Both of those create a separation, a wall. So we see, you see the wrath of God towards sinners is first pronounced in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve sin, and, and the curse is pronounced. I'm not going to go and read that whole account, but you know, you're familiar with it, the curse. When, and, and they, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, and they did die. And then the, and God pronounced the curse on them. And then at the end of Genesis 3, he cast them out of the garden. He says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the, e- and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, think about that for just a second. That was a judgment of God against Adam and Eve. That he, he, they did die, 
in that day. They spiritually died. And then he, he pronounced the curse on them, and then he cast them out of the garden. He says they're not going to be able to eat from this tree. That's the first sign that we see of the wrath of God towards sin. But then it becomes more clear. It becomes more clear, especially if you read through the Old Testament and you see all the times that God's people rebelled against him and he poured out his wrath on them. Or you see God's enemies rebelling against him and then him pouring out wrath on them. And then the psalmist makes it explicitly clear. In Psalm 5, 4 through 6, he says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. How about that for a Christmas message? But that's, we have to get to it. It's the truth. There's more. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 7, 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And one more from Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. We see the same thing. People love to quote John 3.16, but John, what about John 3.36? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. <clears throat> and then in Romans, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In that same chapter, three times it says God gave them up. He gave them up to impurity. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them up to a debased mind. And that was God's judgment. That was the outpouring of God's wrath on man for his sin against him. So there's a big obstacle there. The wrath of God towards sinners. But then there's also the hostility of sinners towards God. That same chapter back in Genesis 3, the, the Adam's response after he, he meets the Lord in the garden, it says in verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now that's a low-key blaming of God where Adam is blaming God for his sin. It looks like he's blaming the woman, but he's actually blaming God. The woman you gave me. So I don't even know if Adam realized that he was doing that. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it wasn't intentional, but that's the natural reflex of sinful man towards God is, well, I'm not taking responsibility for it. This is my fault. This is your fault. And it becomes, again, more explicit in the Psalms. In Psalm 2... The psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 10, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. 
Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. John 3, again, says the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Romans 3, the familiar passage, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. Isn't that interesting? It says that the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then listen to this from Romans 8. It says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is not even able to do so. So that's why it says there's no peace for the wicked. The way of peace they have not known. Then Isaiah says that in Isaiah 57. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. All human attempts at peace are vain because it's a sheer impossibility apart from Christ. It's like in Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus where he says, you cross over and dip your finger in the water and and just give me a drop of water on my tongue to cool me and ease this pain. He says, I can't. There's a great chasm fixed. It's the same way apart from Jesus and us. There's a great chasm fixed that no man can bridge save one. And that's why Christmas is celebratory. But we, but we ha- it's more celebratory when we see how uncelebratory it would be if he hadn't come. When we see our state before God apart from Christ, what we're deserving of, the place that we would be all on our own. So there's that insurmountable obstacle of sin and that's met by an incomparable Savior. He's a Prince of Peace. And peace, peace. Not a lot of times you see this in the Scriptures where there's a description of a characteristic like peace, like truth, like light. But those aren't abstract concepts. They're a person. They're a man. They're descriptions of Christ Himself. So He is peace, just like He is love, just like He is the truth, just like He is light. But before we get to that, it's important and helpful, I think, to look at the way that God dealt with sin under the Old Covenant before we get to how He deals with it now under the New. So in the Old Covenant, there was, you're familiar, I'm sure, there was 
the tabernacle and the temple. There were the priests and the sacrificial system. And there was God dwelling among men, but men didn't have direct access to God. He appointed certain men to mediate, and even those were only allowed to come at certain times and certain ways. And they had to atone for their own sin before they could atone for the sin of the people and before they could come into God's presence. We know the elaborate sacrificial system. There was all the types of offerings, then sacrifices that had to be performed in certain ways at certain times by certain people. Very specific. Very specific. You know, you could almost fall asleep reading through all of the prescriptions of how that was all to be performed. And sometimes we just kind of wave that off like, well, you know, that's not really important. But it's important in the sense that you recognize that God is holy and that he has prescribed all these very specific and unique ways that a person must be cleansed and their sin atoned for and covered before they can approach him. And it's also all a picture pointing to something else. That was the ultimate purpose of those things, that, that they, they didn't take away sin. They couldn't take away sin, but they pointed to something better. They pointed to something better. They pointed to, the, under the new covenant, we have a peace that's more permanent, one sacrifice forever, a peace that's more accessible. Now, not just the Jews only, but the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 10, that the first several verses that really highlight this, the difference between the old and the new covenant and the majesty of why it is so glorious that Jesus came and made peace by the blood of his cross. It says in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, and not the true image of the things, it can never, by those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make those who draw near perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And if you flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, That familiar passage that says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
And he goes on to say, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, that's Jew and Gentile. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. <clears throat> and if you flip right over to Colossians, it says something similar. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And it says in Romans 5 that we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So the whole, the whole Old Testament is all a picture, a picture of the peace is a temporary peace. And the only reason that it brought any kind of peace and any sort of reconciliation, any sort of atonement for sin is because it was forward looking. Not because there was anything about the blood of bulls and goats that could take away sin, that could make peace. But because it was a reminder to Father God of the sacrifice that would be offered by his son, the Lord Jesus, when he came to truly take away sin. And to make real, lasting, eternal peace forever for all who would believe. So there was that, that two-fold problem, the wrath of God and the hostility of men. And there's a two-fold remedy that Christ accomplished at the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God like we talk about all the time. Like we remember all the time. He drank the cup of judgment down to the dregs. And, he, and in addition to that, he destroyed the hostility of men. We say, we say often that, we, that he died for us, but that we died with him as well, Romans 6. If we've been baptized into his death, and so we have. So he takes the old Adam down into death, into the grave at the cross, and he, and he lays him down there, and we're raised up a new man. So the hostility is destroyed. Isn't it interesting that the greeting that Jesus greeted the disciples with after the resurrection was, peace be unto you. And so he says it three times in John, 
peace be to you. And then Luke 24, when he appears to them all, he says the same thing, peace to you. It's a frequent opening in the epistles, grace to you and peace. I always, always just kind of read those admittedly as you know, gl- gloss over them, like, oh, that's the greeting. You know, you kind of gl- gloss over the greeting and you gloss over the conclusion and you're like, all right, let me get to the real. But if you really meditate on that and meditate on this, that he's made peace by the blood of his cross, he's re- made a reconciliation between us and him so that we can enjoy peace and communion with him and so that we can obey his commandments and enjoy the peace and the blessing and the prosperity of the rewards of that. So there's a, an abundance of peace for the righteous. There's that threefold peace, the peace with God, the peace of God, and peace from God. But there's really more to why he's called. I've got two minutes. He's, there's really more to why he's called the Prince of Peace. It's not just you and me. It's not just that he's reconciled you and me, but it's a cosmic redemption. He said that in Colossians. He's reconciled all things to himself. He died not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. It calls him the savior of the world. Now, that doesn't, certainly doesn't mean that everyone's going to be saved, but there is some mystery to that, that he's the Savior of the world, that he has reconciled all things to himself. There's a cosmic nature to his redemption and to the peace that he gives. And the way that it works is that peace, the peace begins with you and me individually, and then it spreads corporately as our numbers increase. That's how the kingdom of God is built. And the more that it's built and the more it grows, the more peace is established. Now contrast that with other religions, like especially Islam. I read something that was, it had, they had a, a percentage threshold of the way that Muslims act when, when they have a certain percentage of uh, the majority in a country. And it's, you know, it's very, pe- it's all peace, peace, very peaceful in the beginning when they're like sub 20%. And, but once they reach the threshold of majority and they get over 50%, then instantly it becomes like an iron fist and they establish the Sharia law. And then it's no longer peace, it's war after that. And it's militancy against anyone who won't bow and submit. But that's the opposite of how God's kingdom works. That's because every other religion can't deal with the hostility in the human heart. It can only have a facade of peace. It can only be peace on a superficial level. Only Christ can give true peace. And that's the way that his kingdom works. That's the way that it, that it increases. As, as it increases, it, the peace for all increases. If you just look at the example of Christianity in the West, you know, people like to talk about how how bad religion is for the world, or how, you know, militant atheists like to talk about that, how bad religion is for the world, or how much damage it's done, or the wars caused by religion, or this thing and that thing. But if you really look at the, at, at the truth of history and the positive effect that Christianity in particular has had on the world, especially in the West, it's, it was the beginning of the abolition of slavery. That was, that was Christians. Christians invented hospitals. The life expectancy has increased. There's been a dramatic reduction in poverty and hunger and an increase in prosperity worldwide as the kingdom of God has continued to grow. 
So even people who aren't in Christ experience the blessed benefits of his rule and reign as he extends his kingdom further and further. But there's going to come a day when the kingdom is consummated fully. Those not in Christ will be cast out and all their benefits removed. And those in Christ will be welcomed in and all their benefits increased. As Jesus says in Matthew 13, To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So as I'm closing down, let's turn your attention back to the Isaiah passage. And I want to read this commentary from Matthew Henry on It's focusing in on verse 7 right after those names given to Jesus, right after he's called the Prince of Peace, where it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And this is what Matthew Henry has to say about that. Glorious things are here spoken of Christ's government. It shall be an increasing government. It shall be multiplied. The bounds of his kingdom shall be more and more enlarged, and many shall be added to it daily. The luster of it shall increase, and it shall shine more and more brightly in the world. The monarchies of the earth were each less illustrious than the other, so that what began in gold ended in iron and clay. And every monarchy dwindled by degrees, but the kingdom of Christ is a growing kingdom and will come to perfection at last. That it it shall be a peaceable government, agreeable to his character as the prince of peace. He shall rule by love, shall rule in men's hearts, so that wherever his government is, there shall be peace. And as his government increases, the peace shall increase. The more we are subject to Christ, the more easy and safe we are. So we celebrate that today. We celebrate 2,000 years ago when the kingdom was inaugurated at the birth of Christ in the world. We look forward to the increase of his government and of peace, like leaven spreading through a loaf of bread or like a, a mustard seed growing into a, a full tree. That's how Jesus described the kingdom. And we long for the day when the Prince of Peace will return and establish his eternal kingdom in all of its glory and all of its fullness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these vivid descriptions that you give of your kingdom and We look to you with worshipful hearts as as we consider the way that you've written the glorious story of history, the mercy that you've shown in Christ, and the way that you begin in the hearts of individual men and women, that you reconcile us to yourself, that you pour out your peace in our hearts, that you give us grace to walk in obedience to your commandments and experience the fruit of that in peace in our lives. And that as you build your kingdom, as you bring men and women into it, peace spreads throughout the world. And you are the prince of peace, Lord. We want to see your government increase. And we want to see the increase of peace eternally. We want to see you ruling and reigning, and we want to be faithful in obedience to you to usher it in and to be used by you to that end. I pray that you give us especially worshipful hearts as we look to the remembrance of your birth tonight and tomorrow as we worship together and 
delight in you and enjoy time with our families, that it would be a blessing to us and to you and uh, a sweet savor to you as we worship in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.